In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. This episode is about the listeners. In other words, I sent a message out on Instagram asking fans of, of, of me, my show, my work, my book, da di da to send me questions, questions that they want answers to or that they're curious about. So what I've done is I've collected loads of questions and I do appreciate you sending me your questions. Thank you so much. But there are far, far, far too many questions for me to answer. So I've just selected the, uh, the, the first 10 or 15 that, that came my way and I'm going to answer those questions. And, and, and generally, a lot of questions that I'm asked are duplicated. You know, 10 people are asked me exactly the same question. So I'm hoping that within the answer to the question that I do read out, you get an answer to your question or at least part of an answer to the question that you sent me that I'm unable to 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 respond to. Otherwise, I'll be here until the cows come home, if you like, forever, forever, forever. Because I did get loads of questions. And, and I just want to thank everybody for, for interacting with me in the way that you have. But let's not delay. Let's just go straight to your questions. So this is the format. You sent the question. I screen grabbed. I'm going to read that question. And then I'm going to ad lib answer that question um, the, be- the best that I can in the shortest time that I can. So the first question comes from Barbara. Barbara is from Brazil. And this is her question. Which of the prisons you filmed in were you most scared to be at? OK, Barbara, that that. That's not an easy or difficult question because, in my view, all prisons are scary. It doesn't matter where in the world you go, what the conditions are like, what resources they have or don't have. Prisons are scary. They're scary places. The structure of prisons are scary. Being in a cell is scary. Being in a dormitory with with lots of other prisoners who pose a threat is scary. You know, the, the... the, the symbolic building 
of a prison, barbed wire, tall walls, you know, some watchtowers with armed guards, etc. All of that is scary, especially for those going in for the very first time or family members going in and visiting. But for me, the, the, the scary thing is that you have your liberty taken away and all this, so you don't know what's coming next. You don't know where the threat is coming from. You don't know who the dangerous person is because sometimes we stereotype the dangerous person as the person that looks like they're dangerous. Um, Looks can be deceiving as we know in real life. So I hope that goes some way to answering, answering your question. I wasn't scared in any particular prison I'm scared in all of the prisons that I go in for different reasons, I think is how you pronounce the name. It doesn't say where he or she comes from. But the question is this. Hello, I know from your project on Netflix, definitely a great thought production. And when I researched you personally, I found that you spent 12 years in prison, really long time. What I'm wondering is, what did these 12 years change or add to you? Positive, negative. I've been asked that question many times. And the reason it's a difficult one to answer is because how do I know what my personality and character would have become had I not spent 12 years of my life inside prison? There's no doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, that prison shaped my heart, my thinking, my physical well-being. Prison played a significant role in my outlook in life. So those things can be considered Kiwi, Kiwi um, as positives and negatives because I'm empathetic to others who are going through negative experiences and it doesn't just mean prison, it means people who are suffering because I suffered. So I like to think that that my empathy... Um, and sympathy with those who are suffering, whatever that suffering is triggered by, is shaped by the fact that I suffered myself. So even even the negatives have positives. I hope that that helped answer your question. The next question um, comes from Ethan, based in South Africa, and he says, Hi, big fan here. I just wanted to know what kept you going. Like, what was your motivation through your toughest times? And how did you learn to cope and never give up? Much love from South Africa. I I, I often say hope. I often say hope deep in the gut of my inner being kept me going and not giving up. Um, hope that the decision that I would be freed would come along. Hope that my family would say, stay strong, hope that I could get out of bed the next day and walk out of that cell door uh, and survive another day. So hope was embedded deep in my inner being. Um, what motivated me was my, my belief that my wrongful convictions would be overturned and that I would be released from prison. I never, ever um, gave up on that thought. Not for one moment. Of course, there were depressing and dark times that that made it challenging for me to get out of bed and continue. But I kept telling myself over and over and over again that I was stronger than the system and the people 
and and the wrong that was suppressing me, oppressing me, or keeping me down, or trying to stop me from 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 my freedom. Um, so there were many things that that come from within, but obviously the belief from others outside of of my existence, uh, um, you know, the prison, you know, the the love from my family, desperately keen to help me. Um, the supporters that I had on the outside fighting to prove my innocence, etc. So, you know, and I can't not mention the, the physical strength that I built for myself to survive the, the the suffering that I was enduring. And by that, I mean exercise, just keeping my body physically fit, kept my mind fit and got me through some of the real tough times. And I'm not talking about power, power, muscle stuff. I'm just talking about a mundane exercise, repetitive exercise, whether it was a push-up or a sit-up, whether it was running on the spot, whether it was running around the exercise yard, you know, clearing my mind, diverting my my thoughts from freedom to... Um, empowering myself or powering myself up it's like it's like what we do with our phones we know that our phone is losing its battery power so we plug it in and that's all i mean sometimes during our toughest times let's plug our our ourself in and charge up ready to be ready to get ready that's what i'm saying i i hope that again answers your question this question comes from um, the handle Snapping Picks, um, and I think you're based in New York. And your question is, is similar to the last question. Was there a time in your life when there was no light at the end of the tunnel? If so, how did you deal with each day? I kind of answered a bit of that in my previous answer. Um, I think we all find that our light goes out at times. It might be that you fall out of love. It might be that someone falls out of love with you. It might be you lose your job. It might be you can't pay the bill. It can be for a number of different reasons. And I think it's our it's our human instinct. And that's the only thing you can use at times. It's, it is yourself. Uh, people can give you advice. People can help you over that hurdle, um, but but you have to find that inner strength, don't you? And that's what I did in prison. That's what I do in my work as a journalist. Um, when I see suffering, you know, there, there can be nothing um, more empowering than knowing you can do something to help somebody else. So even when you feel that you need help, by helping yourself, you're helping somebody else because you can then share what you did to overcome your own dark moment, you know, when that light's gone out. Um, and I hope that, that that inner strength that we can call on when we desperately need it. And I know it's not easy because sometimes we can't find it. Sometimes we've called on it so many times that there's nothing left in us to call on. But believe me, there is, there is always going to be something that you can call on. And, and, and one way of doing that is telling yourself, go and look in the mirror, 
and say, I'm better than this, I'm stronger than this, there is a way out, etc. Whatever it is that you need to say to yourself to motivate you, to help you, you, you get out of that dark corner, it's possible, isn't it? I mean, that's what I think, and I'm just trying to be um, direct here. So I hope, I hope I've answered some of what you've asked me, snapping pics. This one comes from Charlene. Charlene is also based in South Africa. And she asked, how did you deal with the fact that you lost 12 years? Have you spoken to those that lied and falsely accused you from South Africa? I love your show. Binged it all in a week. Thanks for watching the show and thanks for binging. Um, You know, did I lose 12 years? 12 years were, were taken away from me um, and replaced by, by the suffering that I went through. And, and, and we've discussed that in one of the earlier answers. Um, no, I've never spoken to those people that lied and falsely accused me. Um, no one's ever apologised for what they did to me. Um, not that that would make a difference. You can't say sorry to me and give me back what was taken away from me, um, you know, that helped some people. I don't think it would make any difference to me to hear somebody say sorry to me um, because sometimes sorry is a bit too late. But, you know, it works for some people and I'm not knocking it. But that's my answer. No, I've never spoken to to any of those who, who gave false evidence, lied and and led me into the situation that I ended up being in. This question is coming in from from Leanne and uh, Leanne, I think, is based in the United Kingdom, England. Uh, And she's a little cheeky because she asked more than one question. Let's just read what her questions are. She says, hi, Raphael. I have a question which has been in the back of my mind for some time. I watch you on the world's toughest prisons, which I love. So entertaining. The guy that did it before you was too scared all the time. You definitely kicked it up a notch. And she does a little laughing face. I hope you will be doing more episodes. Well, yes, I will, Leanne. I have a few questions. And her first question is, how did you get the scar on your face? This question must be poking everyone's brains. Well, for those who have, and my answer, Leanne, is you can read how I got the scar on my face by buying my book, Notorious. Um, And for those who have read my book, they will know the answer. But those who are curious, then I urge you to go and read my book and it will tell you how I got the scar on my face. Or ask someone who's read the book and they can share it with you. So that's my answer to that one. She also says, what inspired you to be a journalist when you were locked up? I'm going to answer that very briefly. And, you know, this isn't the complete answer, but the fact of the matter is the media played a significant role in my wrongful conviction because they were calling for for hanging to be brought back. The media, you know, condemned me to to being a monster so that the criminal justice system could could get away with wrongfully imprisoning me um, for crimes I didn't commit. So I think they played a significant, a significant role, as they do, because of the way they portray cases, etc., especially here in the United Kingdom. So when I was in prison, I knew that I needed the media to tell the public that I was innocent. 
So I studied a journalism course. So this was part of what I did. I studied a journalism course so that I knew how to work within the media, how to write articles, how to approach what the media did, who was who, what was what. And I used that knowledge to start using the media to tell my side of the story. And it worked. She also asks, um, what are your plans for the future? Stick to journalism or take another path? Now, Leanne, I've given you three questions um, and you've taken up the space of many other people, but they're good questions. What does the future hold? Listen, I'm taking each day as it comes. I'm doing another two seasons of Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, which I'm sure fans of the show will be happy to, to hear about. Um, I'm working on a number of other projects. I'm doing an audible podcast at the moment that will be released either later this year or the beginning of next year. I'm working on various projects here in the United Kingdom and in the United States of America, um, TV projects, documentary projects. Not quite sure whether they will be on Netflix or one other broadcaster, but yeah, lots of things going on at the moment. This question comes from Milton. Milton is based in Brazil and he says, would you accept to be interviewed by a group of teenagers by conference call? I am a teacher in Brazil. Congratulations on your work. Well, thanks, Milton, for for the invite. And I would be open to the idea of talking to a bunch of, of teenagers if what I have to say can help them or inform or, or share my knowledge in order for them to pursue what it is that they want to do. But I can't do that with everyone all the time, or I would never be able to do the things that I need to do, both in my personal life and in my work life. So, you know, my answer to you and to anybody else who's who would be, you know, wanting me to, to come to their... Um, I mean, I do public speaking and I charge people. People have to pay me, you know, organizations, corporates, etc., for me to come along and share um, my insight and knowledge around prisons or, or my own personal experience. And that's only right. If I've got to give up hours of my time, um, then I, I expect a fee for that. I don't do it everywhere and all the time. Um, but, you know, I've got bills to pay just like everybody else. and and. I'd be open to the idea is what I'm saying. It's really about finding the time to do it. So um, let's continue that conversation. Karis, based in Australia, asked me, when filming the world's toughest prisons, have you ever made a big mistake? Um, I'm sure we have. Nothing obvious. I mean, I may have asked the wrong prisoner the wrong question, I may have gone in the wrong place at the wrong time. I may have misread the threat from prisoners. Um, uh, You know, I may have accused a guard or something. So I'm sure we have made mistakes, but nothing I can remember that worried or worries me. Um, But mistakes are made all the time. She also asked me, What is the best thing about your job? 
I'm a curious individual and I just love meeting and talking to people who have a story to tell. And I believe every single human being has a story to tell. We often hear people sort of say, oh, I'm boring or whatever, but it's not true. I think when you think about it and when you if you can articulate your story, whatever that story is, um, your life is not as boring or as mundane or as uneventful as you like to think it is. It's how you tell that story that can make that um, person more interesting. But I love my job not only because I I meet lots of people in lots of weird and wonderful places around the world, and I'm not just talking about going inside prisons, but I mean in my in my personal life, etc. Um, but I think it's sharing other people's stories, bringing people into places. Um, that they wouldn't otherwise be privileged to get into, um, seeing things, hearing things um, from a different perspective is is really important to me and keeping it real, authentic, if you like. And I try to do that as much as possible. I'm even trying to do that right now on this podcast as I answer your questions. She also asked me, and here we go again, how much research and preparation goes into each episode and how long does it take to film? I think let's just say one episode in one prison often takes um, two weeks. That's a week inside the prison, um, but a week, you know, split in half either side. So arriving in the destination, depending on how far and long the flights are, you, you know, bedding down in the country, you know, getting over the jet lag, if you like, and then um, decompressing once we get out the other side of the prison. But, you know, filming itself takes you know, seven to 10 days. And then the editing of each episode can take um, at least two to three months. You know, that can be not every day for two to three months, but over a period of time, you have to bring all the material and decide what you can use best. Um, She also asks, how big is the crew you take with you? Well, that varies. uh, you, You know, the core crew would be me, two camera persons who also are the directors and the producer, um, sound man or woman, you know, so four people is the core team. And then obviously if it's a country where I don't speak the language, a translator. So um, generally four, but four or five people may be involved in the prison shoot. And then we have maybe one or two other people that are involved in other aspects on location. So not a big crew. And we do try to minimize where we can the number of people who go in prison. So sometimes it might only be four of us in the prison at any given time, two people filming me and my interaction with the prisoners and following me. And one person who kind of helps with any other logistics like translation or da-da-da whilst we're there. Laura, who I think is based in the United States of America, says this. I want to thank you for the podcast. I think I have listened to 95% of them. I skip the ones where rape is involved. How are you able to distance yourself psychologically from some of the stories you hear on the podcast or prisons? You seem quite empathetic. Do you switch off as soon as the camera or mic is turned off? My answer to that, Laura, is no. How could I? When I hear some of the most disturbing, concerning, worrying, scary, um, sad 
stories that I hear, I can't just switch off. You know, they live with me immediately after and to some extent forevermore. But I process them in a way where I use them to um, enhance or enlarge my knowledge and my ability to share other people's stories. As I said a little bit earlier on, sharing people's stories matters to me and how you share those stories is is key because people listen in different ways. And so switching off when the camera's off or the mic's off is an automatic, you know, that's the end of my job, a professional journalist. Um, but, but, but when I'm doing my professional journalism, I'm also a human being. I cannot detach who I am as a person, what I believe in my morals, my values, etc., with who I am as a, as a journalist, um, even though I try to do that sometimes when, when it calls for that. So no, I don't turn off. But what I'm able to do is compartmentalize. And I I think I learned that skill during my own suffering when I was in prison. I learned to put things into certain boxes in my mind. Now, please don't psychoanalyze me and decide that not just you, Laura, but anybody listening to this, that I now need to go and get some kind of therapy to unlock those boxes. No, I've compartmentalized them and processed them. Um, so that I can use that insight, that knowledge and that experience from somebody else to to shape and inform how I talk to other people who are going through a similar experience. I've never been raped, but by interviewing somebody who has been raped, I learn something new every time. And it helps me when I go along and ask other people questions about that experience. You know, my approach, my questions, etc. So um, switching off is probably not the right thing to do. Um, Brad from New Zealand um, asked me, hey man, question for your podcast. What have you noticed are the differences in both the positive and negative effects between punitive justice systems versus restorative justice systems? I hope that made sense. Brad, um, they're very different systems, aren't they? I think restorative justice systems is about repairing the harm between the victim and the perpetrator. It's about bringing those people together, uh, uh, whether it's individuals or, or communities or, you know, others that that need the harm being repaired in the hope that it will um, avoid any further conflict or criminality, etc. So restorative justice or alternative forms of justice are really about repairing the harm caused and that can be of benefit to, to many many people um, in serious situations you know I've interviewed individuals who have met the, the person who's killed a loved one um, or has committed a, a violent act against them in, in, you know an act of violence or rape or something like that where they've met the perpetrator and they've been empowered by the fact that they've been asked or been able to ask that individual lots of questions about why they did what they did. Um, and it's empowered them and, and helped them overcome their fear of, of that person doing it again, etc. So there are extremely important benefits in restorative justice. I think the other side of it, um, you know, punitive justice systems is about punishment, isn't it? It's about retribution. It's about you did wrong and you're going to be punished. And 
one way is sending you to prison. It might be community service. It might be a fine. It might be something else. But um, that excludes, in my view, the the victim um, to some degree, because although the victim may feel that that individual has now been punished, they and their concerns and their needs have not been addressed. So the punitive system, I think, excludes the victim. So, you know, I think a, a, an amalgamation of the two um, in some countries um, works much better than, than separating the two. But it's a difficult one, is it? It's a complex one. And I hope I've given you my thoughts. Hey, at last, I've got a question that is not relevant to Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, etc. But look, I'm kidding. This one comes from, from Emma. I don't know where Emma's based because I can't see. But anyway, she says, hi, Raphael, a question for your Second Chance podcast. What was the scariest part when you covered the Blood Diamond story for the media? It read in your book to be a really traumatic article to cover, but what was the hardest challenge to overcome on that journey? Many thanks, Emma. I uh, um, j- Just to put this into context, um, as a BBC journalist, I did a lot of undercover journalist reporting. So I'd go undercover, deep undercover, you know, grow a beard or change my name, you know, and go to places around the world to expose wrongdoing. And on this one occasion, one of the very first exposés that I did as a as an investigative journalist was to um, go to Sierra Leone in in Africa in West Africa and um, buy conflict diamonds at the time the the governments around the world in particular the European governments and international governments were um, introducing a new process called the Kimberley process and this process in effect was a certification process that all diamonds being traded around the world should come with a certificate to prove that it had not been mined um, through conflict because there was a lot of conflict in in places like Sierra Leone at the time where people were losing their lives or being amputated for, for diamonds by militia and rebels in civil wars etc etc the politics aside for a moment but I I went to Sierra Leone to expose the fact that these certifications were not worth the paper they were written on. So as an undercover journalist, I pretended to be a diamond trader. I went to Sierra Leone. I purchased a number of uncut diamonds from traders, from marketeers. I then smuggled those diamonds out of Sierra Leone back to the United Kingdom and I attempted to sell these diamonds to diamond traders at, in, in Hatton Garden, which is our sort of um, market for for diamonds. It's a huge trading place, still is probably one of the biggest in the world. These diamonds that I had were not, as you would imagine, the kind that sit in the nice case of a, a of a, an engagement ring or um, some other kind of you know, bling bling thing. These were black diamonds. So these are the raw diamonds that artists and miners were were smuggling out of the mines that they were mining for big corporate companies who make zillions of pounds. Um, These were the black diamonds that were being sold on the black market. So when I took them into the stores in Hatton Garden, you know, these guys had to look very carefully at what the value of these diamonds would be. And what they did is they offered me money for these diamonds. So I exposed what I set out to expose. Um, you know, that these certification process mean nothing to the people that are buying and trading these diamonds because 
um, as long as there's money involved, you know, rules will be will be broken. But you asked me the question, Emma, you know, what 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 was the most challenging of, of this? Um, I suppose it was that there are two sides of it, really. I think the first thing is when you do what I do, which is go into these um, third world countries, the developing countries, and you expose something like the trading conflict diamonds, you're also exposing the fact that people in desperate need um, to survive do desperate things. So, you, the, the, you know, these individuals who were swallowing or pocketing diamonds from these mines could face severe consequences, not only losing their job, which they're paid a pittance for anyway, but they could suffer a lot more in, in retribution from the people that own these mines. So by exposing, I wasn't exposing the individuals, but by exposing the trade, it has a knock-on effect to these individuals because they can no longer smuggle out and therefore I'm depriving them of, of, of a means of a living. And I feel slightly guilty about that. Although it's all wrong, I, you know, I do have a responsibility um, so, you know, that is always challenging because by trying to do the right thing, it has a knock on effect. And, and so you have to weigh up that 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 balance. But it was also a very dangerous trip on on one occasion. Just after I bought the diamonds, I went back to um, my my room at a hotel it was probably the worst hotel I've ever stayed in my life. You know, the sheets had blood on it. You know, more details in my book, Notorious Plug Plug. But. While I was in my hotel room, there was a knock on the door. And when I opened the door, there were some guys standing there demanding that I purchase their diamonds. And they were very menacing and very threatening that I was a Westerner in their country and that I must have lots of money and that I must buy their diamonds. So we had to flee when I, I arranged to meet them later on looked at their diamonds, said I'd meet them later on, et cetera, et cetera. When they disappeared, um, I quickly got, I, mean, I was only, I only had two other team members with me, um, a director, Rachel, and a, a genuine diamond ex-cop who, uh, I say an ex-cop who had expertise in diamonds. And he was my kind of eyes and ears, if you like, whether the diamonds were good, blah, blah, blah. So the small team of us actually, you know, jumped into our vehicle um, drove to Freetown Airport. Um, well, it was actually a helicopter pad, and we jumped on this old Russian helicopter, um, which then flew us out of Freetown and away from the, the threat. But it was it was quite a, a, a moment, you know. Think of um, DiCaprio in in the film Blood Diamonds, and there I was, you know. Okay, it wasn't quite as well. It was as dramatic as that actually, because it was dangerous. You know, people lose their lives over these things. And if 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 my um, personality, my character would have been exposed, if they discovered that I was a journalist, I'm sure it would have been really, really tricky for me to get out of the country. But there you go. Maybe that was my second chance. Um, and that was one of the very first undercover journalist stories that I, I did for the for the BBC. And that was like 20 years ago. So I've been kicking around a long time for you listeners. And I will be kicking around for a lot longer. Thank you for listening to my podcast. It's been a pleasure answering your questions. I'm sorry I've not been able to answer all of your questions. Um, some of you I will send direct messages to to answer your questions or to say, sorry, I can't answer your questions. But for the rest of you, 
have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, um, I will, you know, resume normal service by inviting guests onto the podcast to, to talk about their stories. And for the Inside the World's Toughest Prison fans, um, I'm off very soon to start filming my first um, in the next series of episodes. So I hope that excites you. Have a fantastic day. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.